This episode is sponsored by Safety, a violence prevention app that could save your life. Now, I want to be very clear that no app is a silver bullet and in a violent situation, you might freeze, your nervous system might take over, or you might really love your attacker and not feel like you could push a panic button. There are many types of responses that you might have when experiencing violence. However, you want to have the option to be able to panic if you need to. And what do I mean by that? So the Safety app has a panic button that you can press and it will immediately start taking photos of your selfie camera and your back camera, collect your GPS and audio and send that data to three emergency contacts. To download the Safety app onto your phone is completely free if you are just using the panic button and you can try out some of their other features for 28 days as well. It's on Apple and Android and the links to do so are in the show notes for this podcast episode. Once again, I want to say a big thank you to our friends at Safety. Hello, this is the Fight Back Podcast hosted by exercise scientist Georgia Berry. Here, you'll find a series of honest conversations about martial arts and mental health. My guests and I explore the statement that every martial artist has heard. Martial arts saved me. How and why do combat sports save people? Listen to find out. Mina, welcome to the Fight Back podcast, everyone. I'm here today with Mina Kim, who has an incredible and brave story to share with all of you. So she is now a Muay Thai, Jiu-Jitsu and MMA practitioner. She's been through an incredible ordeal to the point where martial arts have saved her life essentially twice. So we're going to share that story with you. She's also got a background in having her degree in youth counselling um, or in counselling and youth protection. So she's got some really interesting and valuable perspectives to lend into this space. Mina, welcome to the Fight Back podcast. Hi, Georgia. Hi, everyone. Uh, hello from Vancouver, Canada. Uh, pleased to be on the show. So, so, so grateful that you, like I said, are being so brave in sharing this story because it really is incredible. Everything that you've been through to become the incredibly strong woman that you are today. So, like I mentioned, it it really seems like martial arts saved you twice. And we need to tell quite a bit of backstory to even get to the first instance. So, tell us a bit about your childhood. You started in Taekwondo. Why was that? Yes. Uh, well, my father, uh, he's Korean and, you know, uh, it was very important that family tradition was carried on. Uh, and so I was the third generation in my family to get a black belt and my son, he's now 21. Uh, when he was 14, he got his black belt also, but not in Taekwondo, but um, through uh, my coach's MMA uh, belt system. And so that's four generations of black belts in my family. But yeah, my my father was a a big uh, believer in uh, martial arts and carrying on tradition. Uh, Yeah, I had a pretty bad childhood. 
you know, people think that, I guess people have a, a preconceived conception with Asian families being very, um, what can we say, sort of free of abuse and sort of just pretty, pretty much just typical with, you know, having to, to uh, stay in school and do your best, that type of thing. But, you know, behind closed doors, I was getting beaten up every day by my father. Uh, so I would probably have to say I didn't really have too much of a childhood. But the only thing that really kept me going probably was the martial arts. Because during uh, the time that I was taking my classes at uh, the gym, pretty much that was the only time that I felt free and able to let out some of my pent-up aggressions from, I guess, in a sense, being beat up all the time. And as a result, as a child, I did lots of tournaments and competed and got a lot of medals and trophies, which probably... I think if I had lost, I would have probably gotten beaten worse. So, yeah. And that, that childhood really for you set the setting for you meeting your ex and entering into, into the relationship, which we're going to talk about today. And I will say that what we've already spoken about might be difficult for people to listen to, but we're going, what we're going to speak about now also might be incredibly triggering. And so please be kind to yourself, you know, have supports available if you do want to listen and remember that you can pause or stop this recording at any point if it does make you feel uncomfortable. But yeah, Mina, you met your ex. Tell us about him. I was quite young. Uh, I was 22 when I first met him and he was 10 years older than me. So, I mean, at that point in time, I was from a very sheltered, but yet uh, very abusive home. Mm -hmm. And so this man promised me who was 10 years older, a good life and I'll take care of you and nobody will do that to you ever again. But in turn, that person did exactly what my father did to me, if not worse. And, you know, we talk about victims who pretty much look for someone to save them. And looking back on this now, I can see why I just took off with this man because he promised me an out and I blindly went with him and, I was with him for four years and it ended up being, it actually felt like 40 years, to be honest. But, you know, looking back on this, I I can see uh, sort of how I was almost groomed. And I talked about a lot of my childhood. And so he knew a lot of detail about me. And so I think that, knowing that much detail about my childhood Mm -hmm. framed his method for control and power and all of the different psychological, mental, emotional, and after that financial abuse as well. So yeah, it, it, you know, looking back now, 
and we all we all kind of talk about would have should have I should have done this I should have done that but at the time when I was going through it and being so young I think I did not know uh what I was going to do yeah I just I don't think I was able at that time to see that and to recognize them for what they were what were some of the red flags a lot of it had to do with uh, kind of if I didn't do things exactly the way that he wanted, mm-hmm. such as if there was dog fur on the floor or if there was a speck of soap on one of the dishes, uh, things that did not meet his standards. Well, mm-hmm. then I heard about it and Sorry, I have allergies, so my eyes are a little itchy right now. Oh, uh, yeah, if if I didn't do something exactly to his liking, well, then that was it. I had to meet his his wrath and his fury. And other red flags, a lot of the mind control. Uh, he would always blame things on me. Look what you're making me do. And he would rationalize his abuse and sometimes he would hit himself in the face and say look what you're making me do and you know a lot of the things had to do with do as I say or else and I I became very I guess dependent on this person in financially as well but not only that um I just couldn't make decisions, even to the point of eating. Um, I remember exactly the day that he started his psychological mind control, telling me that I was fat. And to my recollection at that time, I probably weighed about 125 pounds. And I mean, we know that that's not very big. I mean, I, I, I'm 5'5", five five, so, you know, one would argue that that's pretty, pretty normal, that's normal healthy. weight, and mm. right? It's Yeah, it's quite on the healthy side. And in the four years' time, by the time I left, I was 107 pounds. My skin had turned green, and my hair was falling out. For any Australian listeners, 107 pounds is about 48 kilos, I think. Yeah, I think so. It's very, very, very small. Oh, I could see my ribs and just, there was no meat on my body. It just seemed to just, uh, even the color of the skin was just really almost green, like sallow. And uh, yeah, and it was just no appetite whatsoever because I'd become accustomed to not eating. And I remember when I did reach 107 pounds and I looked at myself in the mirror, I had just uh, gotten out of the bath and I caught a glimpse of myself and I thought, oh my goodness, uh, why do you look like that? And it was the first time that I actually accurately took a look at myself where you know, some of the world vision commercials where you see kids that are starving, that are malnourished and just, 
oh my goodness, I did not know that I was in that that state until I I just looked at myself and I realized that this this was not this was not good. And I think it was at that point that I started thinking, you know, uh, I think I think there's a problem here. But at that time, I think because I was so dependent on this man and financially I had no money. And so I thought to myself, like, how am I going to get out, you know, and you know, I think at that point, I think I clearly remember telling myself that something is wrong here. Mm-hmm. What about his reaction to you losing the weight since he told you you needed to lose weight? Mm. When I got to 107 pounds, I remember he looked at me and said, oh, you're too skinny now. You better start. You better start putting on a bit of weight. You have no no boobs and no ass. And so you better start putting on the weight. And so I thought to myself, like, oh my goodness, now I'm going crazy. Now, now he's telling me I'm too skinny. So what now I have to change myself for him. But then I realized, you know, I, I do look quite skinny. So maybe I had better start eating. Um, but then at that point, um, because I'd become accustomed to not eating and my stomach had shrunk so much, mm. even... I remember eating six potato chips and feeling like I was going to explode. Like I was just so full, you know? Uh, yeah, it's a lot of psychological control. And not only that internally, what does that do to your body internally when you haven't had the proper nutrients in your, in your body and six potato chips makes you full, you know? Absolutely. And I mean, like we can talk about he he even tried to kill you. Yes. Uh, the first time uh, he had put yellow sunlight dish detergent, the liquid detergent in my food. And I remember lifting up the takeout food container and smelling the whiff of that lemon scent, mm. even as of today. And I left this individual on January the 20th, 2001, I still cannot use sunlight dish detergent. I, it just, I can't even look at it in the supermarket, Mm. um, let alone, um, you know, I probably would gag if I smelt it. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time. And the second time he's, I knew he was on something because I had just, managed the restaurant and came home and he somehow wanted that day off. But I think it was because he had planned this out to, you know, kill me that night. And I remember going into the house and wondering where my son and where my husband was. And so I found them in the basement and I said, Oh, what are you doing in there? And he said, Oh, come into the basement. I just want to show you something. And so I came in. And as soon as I came in, he locked the door behind me. And I looked up at him and I knew his eyes were different. Mm-hmm. But his voice, it, it it was just, I'd never heard him speak to me like that before. But 
Like there was nothing behind the eyes. It was like a dead fish eye. Mm-hmm. And he said, tonight's the night I have to kill you. And all of the training that I had done as a child, that actually sprung into action. And I thought to myself, you know, this is it. Like I need, I need to make it out alive. And I actually knocked him out. And I grabbed my son and I ran out the door. Um, prior to this, about a month prior to uh, that fateful night, I had packed a diaper bag with an extra canister of container, four bottles, some baby clothes and diapers, mm-hmm. and a ch- just some change of clothes for my son, as well as our ID. I had put that in there and... You know, I think subconsciously I was, that was my own kind of exit slash safety plan for myself because I think I kind of knew subconsciously that this day might come. I I don't remember really knowing why I packed a bag, but I did. And I put it under the attic stairs uh, by the basement uh, and I remember about a month prior, mm-hmm. uh, I just thought to myself, you never know, you may need this at one point. And so on that night, after I knocked him out, I knew I didn't have too much time. Mm-hmm. And so I just opened the door, grabbed my son like a football and slung that diaper bag over my shoulder and I ran out and I only had one friend, and that's the thing. He he really controlled who I spoke to and who I could befriend. And, and it was my son's babysitter, this nice Christian lady. Uh, and, you know, I never really got the chance to really thank her. Uh, so, Maria in Mississauga, Ontario, if you are listening to this podcast, I want to say thank you. Um, she actually took me in. Uh, and help me escape back home to Vancouver. Wow. Mina, it is such an incredible story. Like, even to to now, it is so tough. And, like, where did you go then? Because did you have someone in your your family or an old friend that you went to because I mean home wasn't exactly a safe place for you back in Vancouver where did you go I actually did end up coming back home Mm -hmm. Um, prior to me going back home because I had tried to book the earliest flight and I and the next flight was the next following day in the Mm -hmm. evening Uh, and so Prior to that, I'd called my mom in Vancouver and basically said, like, you know, I actually have to tell you something. So you need to sit down, mom. And, you know, she really didn't have an idea that this was what I'd been going through. Mm -hmm. And so I had to tell her that I'd been abused for four years and that um, and that. I was coming home. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was, I think, very relieved uh, and very happy 
that I was finally coming home. And she said, you know, she goes, I always knew that you weren't happy, but I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. And so she just said, you know, why did you keep that from us? We could have, we could have done something. And I remember my father saying to me, well, if you bring that baby home, you're just going to have a tough life. So, you know, why don't you give him to that side of the family and just come by yourself? Because otherwise you're going to have a hard life raising that child by yourself. And anyways, he is a descendant of that family. And I said to my father, I said, are you out of your mind? This is your first and only grandson. And I said, what is, what is so important about the last name and being a de- descendant of that family? Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to my father, well, what if we were to change his last name to Kim? Mm-hmm. And my dad said, oh, yeah, then, then if he's going to take on our family last name, then you bring him, you know. And, and so that just shows the mentality, you know of what my father was thinking, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, and you can imagine that wasn't really a safe place for me, but part of me knew that if I was coming home with a baby, that uh, the abuse wouldn't probably take place. So mm-hmm. I took that chance and I came back home to Vancouver. Um, and I remember having to get custody and working my way through the courts. And let me tell you, Georgia, I don't want to speak too ill of our justice system. But here in Canada, it's it's a joke. Mm-hmm. Our justice system is is not, I would say, is still comparable to the 1970s and the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, not much has changed, um, you know, having to get full custody. And I got taken to court once a year, probably for about 10 years. And all of it had to do with, after I got the full custody and a restraining order, mm-hmm. um, it was just going back once a year because he didn't want to pay child support. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, mind you, $329 a month is not very much, but he was able to convince a judge that because he had bipolar disorder and due to his mental illness that he couldn't work and that he wanted the child support amount to be lowered, decreased to $100 a month. I mean, really think about what can $100 a month do, but, you know, the judge allowed it yeah. like 329 is not much anyways. And then, so it got reduced to a hundred dollars a month. And not only that, the judge took off $10,000 in arrears on top of that. So this will tell you about our justice system and how it does not protect the actual victim. And the judge said, well, let's give the man a chance and see if he will pay well, what's happened since then? <laughs> We're back up to 30000 owing in child support in arrears. And the man has never paid. But 
which I don't care if I see that money or not, but I'm quite disgusted with, with our justice system. And this man had breached the restraining order, I would say 12 times. And the latest, (laughs) the latest that he breached it was in 2018. Um, And it was through Facebook. Mm -hmm. He was actually able to find someone to hack into my Facebook. And he took pictures off of my timeline that had my son and myself on my timeline. And he had pasted it onto his timeline and photoshopped himself into every picture. And that's so creepy because it was as if psychologically he wanted to say, I'm still there. I'm a part of this family, you know? Mm. And it was, it was so like creepy and weird to see him photoshopped into every single picture that I had put on my timeline and then phone calls started happening on Facebook messenger. I mean, those guys really need to up their security. That's what I would like to say about Facebook, but Mm. yeah, he was able to call Mm -hmm. and leave messages. Just call me, just call me at this number. You know, I still love you. What have you? Um, And I was just like, you know, there's a restraining order, buddy, like, like, stop, stop this, you know, and finally, I I actually got to say what I wanted to say. And it was very empowering, and really good place for me because I was no longer afraid. And I got to tell him exactly what I thought of him. And where I wanted him to go and how to get there. And I was able to tell him, you know, you know, good so-and-so, you know, this is what I really think of you. You know, you're a really sad, sorry excuse for a human being. And the thing is, he never once took accountability or ever admitted trying to kill me. And the weirdest thing that he said to me was, if you didn't leave in the middle of the night, we could have had three or four more kids. Like, can you imagine the rationale? How could I have popped out three or four more kids if I was dead on that night? Mm -hmm. You know? (laughs) Um, And my son also got to tell him what he thought of him. And I also told him, if you ever come to Vancouver, there's beat down number two waiting for you from not only myself, But our son will kick your ass too. So, you know, I'm not afraid of you anymore. And by the way, the restraining order is still valid. So, you know, I am going to report this. And the thing is, let's talk about our law enforcement. You are going to be absolutely flabbergasted. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, One would expect Mm -hmm. that when you call the Royal Canadian Mounted Police here, that, and I'm sure most police forces say that they're there to serve and protect. Mm -hmm. Well, I did not get that. Uh, First, I was told that my restrainer was too old. 
though there was no expiration date, it was pronounced in 2001, but they said, your restraining order is too old. And so I thought, well, there's no expiration date, so it's still valid. And mm. the police, one of the, I will say it was a staff sergeant of some detachment in the lower mainland of British Columbia that said, what did you do to make him so mad to have him still contact you? What did you do so wrong that he's still contacting you? And what are you afraid of, Miss Blackbelt? Uh, and he's on the other side of the country. And so, you know, basically reshaming and re-victimizing me. Mm. And I was not okay with that. I really wasn't. I mean, I was... I don't want to say that I was afraid so much as really disgusted that these people that are supposed to protect, you know, vulnerable people had the audacity to say, you know, what did you do so wrong that he's still chasing after you all of these years, you know, and what are you afraid of miss black belt, you know, and he's on the other side of the country. So basically you know, kind of simmer down is what, what I gathered, what he was saying. And so I had a really good lawyer at the time who basically said, well, we're ready to fly to Ontario, my client and I, and we're ready to take this to court. And no, her restraining order is still active and valid because there's no expiration date. Hmm. And so basically uh, from my recollection my ex just got a slap on the wrist saying, don't do it again. If you do, we'll have to give you some jail time. But this was the 12th breach. So you tell me, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> this persisting attitude, not just in obviously Canadian law enforcement, but in society, I think where we're so concerned that the repercussions for doing the wrong thing for the perpetrator, you know, like it's going to ruin their life by putting them in jail or it's going to ruin their life if they have to pay all of their money to the victim or it's going to ruin their life if the claims turn out to be false and, and they were falsely accused just in case we better sit on the fence a little bit. Just makes it easier for perpetrators to attack victims and it makes it so much harder for victims to recover. We're seeing this happen exactly. right now in, in sport, in our sport, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. This is really coming out at the moment where we're, we're seeing yes. that the emphasis for the last, I guess, what, 2020, so the last 30 years in jiu-jitsu being such a new sport, but has really come up with this idea of, you know, that just in case the woman is lying, we better make sure we back the man because heaven forbid he miss a week of pay while we investigate or, you know, or get work with, get stood down from work, but with pay while we investigate or his name might be tarnished. Even if he's proven innocent, mm -hmm. his name might be tarnished. So we know we have to make sure that we're looking after that before we look into the seriousness of this to make sure that we're protecting the victim. Like it's, it's really yeah. disgusting. Yeah. And, and, you know, like what kind of a society do we live in where, where the, the perpetrator is protected? I mean, even the staff sergeant said, 
well, how do we know that the text messages that we're seeing on your messenger from him, how do we know that he sent it? You know, do you have concrete proof? And I said, you know, so I just said, oh, so now I could be making this up. Is that what you're saying? Well, you know, and they basically said, well, how do we know this? And so I just felt like just so much that I wasn't going to get any help and that it was just useless and futile. Right. And this is very commonplace with victims, you know, once they escape, their story's not believed or, or, you know, they're, they're having to retell their story. And, but then on top of that, they're getting re-victimized and re-shamed by law enforcement that's supposed to be out there to protect them. So it's just, you can see, and I'm not giving validity as to why women go back but or why they don't leave. But, you know, if, if this is what you're faced with after you leave, then uh, where are we actually, you know, in all of this? Yeah, it really, really adds to the story. And I think it speaks a lot to things that people will say, like, for example, with the social media world that we live in right now, um, if somebody comes out and, like, tells their story publicly, you'll see people commenting, saying things like, well, how do we know this is true? Or, like, yeah, but, like, have you thought about if this is a lie, how this is going to affect the person? And it might be like a gut reflex that they feel like, oh, what if this was me and I was being falsely accused, like someone needs to protect the men. But mm-hmm. I think what people don't realise is that every time you react like that with someone else, there's a victim who's silently watching that thing, you know, getting evidence for who the, who they will and won't tell. And it's kind of piecing more of a picture into their mind of, oh, wow, I was going to tell my story. But now that I see how likely it is that I'm not going to believe, be believed, you know, mm-hmm. I don't want to. And every time you see that happen to somebody else, it makes you be like, no, like I don't, I don't want to tell my story only to be told that I'm a liar on top of everything else. Like the, that's the last thing that I want. That's horrific, right? It really does make it so much easier for attackers to control victims and to keep them silent if the yes. way that we that we meet victims is with distrust because that's mm-hmm. what, that's what's happening exactly exactly so so yeah it's it's not it's still not good enough what what is being done these days with law enforcement and victims and you know, having to go through the whole court process. Like, in my opinion, it it hasn't changed since the 1970s. It's still, it's still um, perpetrator friendly. Yeah, and the statistics would agree with that. Like, there has been by no means any reduction in the amount of assault against women and children in the domestic setting and otherwise, but, you know, especially in the domestic setting, like, okay. and we, you would think that as we've gotten smarter, more advanced with technology, that, that we would see a reduction in that, but it's actually increasing, you know, even before mm-hmm. COVID it was increasing. And now since COVID it's exponentially 
seems to be increasing. I don't think we're going to know the effect of all of these quarantines and financial pressures and, you know, all the things that have come with the pandemic until maybe maybe years from now we'll start to unpack some of the, the impact of this. And, you know, there are conversations that are, that are getting started and I think mm-hmm. all change starts with a conversation and that's great, but, yeah, we've, we definitely have a long, long way to go to, to change to a world that makes it, you know, victim friendly instead of perpetrator friendly. Exactly. You know, and I, I don't want to bring sex into it, but, or gender, but, you know, I, I do think that obviously females are a lot more compassionate, empathetic, and uh, sympathetic to what is happening. And so maybe what it's going to take is to get more female lawyers and police officers and um, in the justice system that that will be the ones to help help the victims to feel supported and to actually start going after these abusers and give them their just desserts if I may say so. Absolutely. And, you know, it's going to be multi-pronged, right? We also, we really, we need women, of course, but we really need men as champions for this. Men who put themselves in the shoes of the women instead of in the shoes of the perpetrator. And, of course, like there Mm -hmm. are situations where women abuse men. There are situations where men abuse men, women abuse women, but like the overwhelming statistically large majority of abuse is men on women because there is, you know, many, many power dynamic differences from, you know, women having babies in the relationships and then for not being able to work, men being able to get work more easily than women. And of course, the the obvious one is them generally being larger and more powerful, although you were still able to knock your perpetrator out, thank God, right? Otherwise, (laughs) you might not be here today. And that, you know, came from, luckily, you having the Taekwondo background. And then as you, I guess, started to find your feet and, you know, build a life again, you found yourself back into a martial arts gym, in fact, a mixed martial arts gym. So tell us about going back to training. Well, I mean, I think subconsciously, because the Taekwondo I associated with my father. And so I think I understand why I took such a long hiatus from from martial arts. Um, But it wasn't because I'd gotten my black belt when I was 18. And Mm. then I, when I was 30, uh, I had met my coach, Simon Posner, at my church. And so when I had left my ex, it was when I was 27. And so during those three years, uh, I pretty much had no thoughts of, you know, taking that up again. And I met this coach at, at the church and somehow I got st- thinking about when did I when did I feel strong and how am I going to how am I going to get my power back and so 
I started thinking and I knew that this coach had a mixed martial arts gym and I started asking questions and eventually I told my story to him and I just remember him saying, well, you should come back to martial arts uh, and, you know, just come and, and train and work out with us and and you know we'll we'll make sure to take care of you and and that's never going to happen to you again and i i just you know it took me a long time you know to muster up the courage to go um and so i mean from 18 till i was 30 i mean that was a long time away from martial arts and i remember walking into the dojo and thinking to myself, oh, you know, this smells really familiar, you know, the gym smell, right? Uh And I remember thinking though that, yeah, maybe, maybe this will be good for me. And at the time, my son Martin, forgive me for saying this, um, (laughs) um, when he was about six you know he was a little bit of a whiner and you know very very quick to to cry I'm so sorry Martin Uh, and um, also it makes sense that he would be like that you know if we think about attachment theory and like everything that mm -hmm. he had been through that he would be more like clingy to his mom that that Mm -hmm. totally makes sense he would have the anxious attachment style after trauma so it's nothing on him (laughs) and so I thought to myself, well, you know, there's no dad around anyways. Let's let's make him into a martial artist and mm-hmm. give him some self-confidence. And um, it did not only that for him, but also for m- myself as well. And, um, you know, I, I kind of think of myself at that time being like Humpty Dumpty. And my coach put me back together. And I mean... Yes, I did the hard work, but, you know, he, he never stopped. Um, he never stopped encouraging me, never stopped believing in me. And when I would freak out on the mats, you know, he was right there, right at eye level. You know, when I was getting squashed, you know, um, where I felt like the air was kind of slowly <laughs> coming out of my lungs and I felt like I was just gonna stop breathing and I remember him just coming down to my level going okay let's not freak out this could hypothetically happen to you and so let's calm down first of all let's calm down our breathing look at me look in my eyes you're not gonna die (laughs) and breaking everything down okay let's trap the leg let's look at different sweeps that we can use we can we can look over our shoulder and put our hand in their armpit and using that trap leg, you can bring him over, you know, and looking at different sweeps and, and really just not freaking out and, and learning how to breathe in that moment. Because I think, you know, when you've gone through abuse and you've been held in those positions, it's, it's actually re-triggering. Right. And so, mm-hmm. I just remember him always, whenever I'd freak out or if I, let's say, was getting picked apart, standing up by like a bigger guy and, you know, he'd be right there. He'd be 
just that voice in the back of my head, you know, what are you going to do? Get on that bicycle, start moving. You don't want to get hit. Don't stand there. Move your head, you know, use your feet. You have feet. That's your bicycle. Like, let's get moving, you know, and um, answer back, you know, if he hits you, hit him back, you know, and I remember eventually at one point he said, you know what? let's talk about competition. And so that ugly part of competition that I hated as a child, um, that kind of was like in the back of my mind um, mm-hmm. after joining the gym. And when he talk, talked about competition and, and because he knew me so well, um, he actually sometimes knew what I was going to say prior to me saying it. And so I remember he said, well, let's talk about competition. And I said, but, and I I put my finger up and I said, but, and then he said, I know this probably brings back bad memories from your childhood having to compete. And competition is not about, not about winning and losing. You know, this is, this is a way for you to ground yourself and test yourself for you. And, you know, this isn't about you having to beat your opponent. It's having to beat all of your insecurities and all of all of your, I can't do this, you know, this negative self-talk. You can beat this. And I believe that if you were to compete, that you're going to win. And so, you know, I think it took his, a lot of his encouragement. He probably, you know, at times like, now, because I mean, I've been at that gym now for 14 years and, you know, part of me now, I, I kind of chuckle, right? Because I remember how um, how different I was and how I lacked self-confidence and, you know, I was always thinking that I couldn't do stuff. And, you know, oftentimes now I, I kind of look back and think, you know, he must have thought like, oh, oh my God oh my God, this girl, like she just, you know, <laughs> what's she thinking? Why, why is she like this? But, you know, and I, I, I remember asking him uh, last month, you know, did I ever get annoying because I, I was such a hard study um, and, and not a quick study either. <laughs> and was I ever annoying because, you know, you know how I was when I first came into the gym and I just recall him chuckling and, you know, kind of giving me the little pat on the head saying, you know what? I never once stopped believing in you. And I never once thought, oh, my God, this girl's annoying. He just said, I was so proud of you and I'm still proud of you. And, you know, like, that's a good coach, you know. And it really highlights the difference two individuals' approach to hearing Mm -hmm. your story, right? One person heard your childhood experience and said to themselves, this is an opportunity for me to exploit a weakness. And another person heard your story and said, this is a person who has been through a lot and needs my support and how can I help? Right. And Mm -hmm. like, if we talk about what's going to change the world and what's going to change attitudes, it's more people being like Simon, like more people being like your Mm -hmm. coach and hearing stories and not 
questioning it, not doubting you, not putting Mm -hmm. it back onto you and saying like, well, maybe you're lying, just taking you as you are at face value and just being there. Like, Mm -hmm. wow, what a difference. Yeah. He, he, he became like family, like a, a big brother. And, you know, we speak about the dojo and how once you become a part of, of the gym, everybody becomes your family and you become this, this one big happy family. It's, you know, and people may look at it as as dysfunctional because we're all beating each other, (laughs) you know, with protective gear on mind you, but Mm -hmm. you know, people can think a martial arts gym is dysfunctional because we beat the crap out of each other. And then when the round ends, we hug it out, you know, and, and, but you know, that's the thing. I mean, I've, I've gained like, you know, some of the guys from the gym, I call them bros or bro chachos and, (laughs) you know, they just, and you know, I'm pretty thankful. They never once, um, took it easy on me they they treated me like one of the guys and and you know basically their thing was well on the street or if a rapist is coming after you they're going to hit you as hard as as we do you better be ready you know and in turn I mean that helped when I was competing as well because if you're used to getting you know hit and trading back and forth with guys and being taken down by guys and and you know being punched and kicked and (laughs) elbowed and need by guys it's like when a girl does that to you it's just like oh what was that <laughs> was that it was that a little swat you know like, <laughs> oh what was that was that a love tap you know over a kick you know so yeah I'm I'm really thankful that somebody actually believed me and oh I forgot to tell you um at one point my ex husband did contact my coach uh, demanding in caps little letters that he wanted to speak to me and my son and kind of chuckled about it and said he's yelling at me (laughs) and so he just said well I did respond back and I said I'm aware that there's a restraining order and you know um so no, you may not talk to Mina and you may not talk to Martin. It's not okay. And so, you know, why don't you pay child support? Maybe that might that might give you a chance to even have a hello come back to you. But, you know, I do know there's a restraining order. So why don't you buzz off? And he never messaged back, you know, some mail that, believes in me and believes me and in my story and you know I mean and that's the thing with this whole me too thing in in the martial arts world so many victims are not believed and mm-hmm. you know it's it's just sad you know and so I think fortunately I mean now there's there's women's only classes there are women in in the gyms now where you can band together, you know, and your story is valid. And, and there are some really good male martial arts instructors that are, you know, just like my coach, Simon, there's lots out there. Um, But, you know, but sadly enough, we do hear these 
stories that are coming out where the victim is not believed. Yeah, and I think from, you know, like what we're saying to any men that listen to this podcast, like it really takes, it really can take one champion, like one champion to stand up and say like, hang on, no, like we should believe this girl, like we should listen to Mm -hmm. her. Particularly if you're running a gym, you have that power. But even if you're like a high belt or a high ranking person or a person who's been around the gym for a long time, you can step up and take that role and speak to the coach or speak to the owners and say, you know, if we want to continue thriving as a business, because gyms as businesses that last are not gyms that purely produce fighters. Those are the 1% of gyms that operate as like a UFC Institute type gym producing fighters. The majority of gyms have people from the community who want to learn a sport for fun and confidence and all the other reasons why people do martial arts. And 50% of the population are women. If women won't come back to the gym, if they're being assaulted, like it's a huge business problem. If you're not looking into this, even if you don't look at it from a being a decent human being point of view, if you just look at it from a business point of view. And like I say, it only takes one person to be that champion to step up and say, we need to take this seriously. We need to listen as other people will then start to listen to you too. So I think that that's something really powerful and actionable that maybe (laughs) men can do to do something differently. And from you, I'm wondering, Mina, to all the women that are listening to the show, would you have a message for them? If you are going through domestic violence and you're questioning whether or not you should leave or if you should stay, I mean, you know, it's it's you that's going to have to make the decision. But if you need help, just reach out, you know. Um, I, I really encourage you to just do what's best for you and, you know. Do what's best for your children. I mean, the worst thing that you want is to have your children think that that abuse is normal or that it's okay Mm -hmm. to treat people the way that you're being treated. And how horrific would it be if your daughter was to find a man exactly like um, her father? And or if the sons thought that it's okay to treat women that way and and carry on the cycle of abuse. So. You know, my encouraging factor is just, you know, no judgment here. But if you need help, just reach out. There is help available and, you know, do what's right for you when you're ready. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Mina. Like I said, I think you're incredibly, incredibly brave to have shared your story. And I really hope that you know, listening to it will benefit someone in some way, whether it's a a lesson or inspiration. Like I said, thank you. Thank you very, very much for coming on. Oh, you're very welcome, Georgia. And also, if there's any master's degree programs that would want to kind of explore doing fighting back against domestic violence using a trauma-informed and martial arts approach hit me up i'd be happy to do that definitely please anyone we need more research in this field so please talk to me now she's willing to do the hard work and you get your name on a paper and be a part of pioneering what i really do think is going to be a part of the future of 
trauma-informed practice um, and trauma recovery. Have you thought of something to be grateful for today? What was it? I am grateful for the amazing women that train with me at the Fight Back Project. I'm grateful for Nari and the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. And I'm grateful for you for listening to this show and helping martial arts keep saving lives. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to leave me a review to help more people find the show, that's a bonus. shapes me but me don't gotta tell you what my name is i don't gotta explain it walk in the room hear a boom erupting like i'm famous i'm here shedding shells i'm shameless i fear nothing no complacence Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause huh, I'm the one to power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience. Meets power meets gracious. Meets, we're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifesting of collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection, I can see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands, I break all these bars, barriers, and obstacles. They can't cage me. They can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances. When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up. I'm not looking for clovers because I don't believe in luck. Damn, you were badass. I heard them say it clearly. Why, thank you very much. I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me because I expect to see growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing. And everything I do, that's me making decisions. It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth. Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth. A penny for my thoughts, no really, you can't afford it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, hold record it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, hold record it, hold. Huh.